This week's Creeps Cast is sponsored by HelloFresh. Go to HelloFresh.com slash MrCreep16 and use code MrCreep16 for 16 free meals across 7 boxes and 3 free gifts. Hello everyone, I hope you're all doing well. We're back at it yet again with another great collection of spooky stories. Shall we begin? As we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. I work as a night guard at a hotel. Tonight, I saw something terrifying on the cameras. Written by Kaz, the Murphy fan. I've been working at my local hotel for quite some time now, and not once has anything out of the ordinary ever occurred. Maybe seeing the occasional person walk out of the room at midnight and catching them doing something odd could count, but nothing overall serious. It's kind of a boring job, but on the bright side, I get to be on my phone most of the time and scroll through Twitter and Instagram, so I can continue being caught up on stuff. Tonight was different, though. It started just like any other night. I walked into the hotel when it's dark and walk up a few floors to go into my office. My office is quite a bit away from rooms and suites so I can talk on the phone or whatever without having to worry about waking people up. The hotel closes at 12 so there isn't anybody else working at this time. But it's weird because you can check out at the front desk if you're planning on leaving after 12. It's odd but I don't worry about it too much. I start my nightly routine by just flipping through different cameras really quick to make sure that they're all working, which they were. I didn't expect anything to start happening for a while, so I pulled up my phone and I checked the time. It was 12.03. My shift ends at around 5 o'clock, right as the hotel opens but sometimes they let me go at 4, so I never have that long of a shift. When I put my phone away so I could actually focus on what my job is supposed to be for a minute, I felt as if the hotel was more eerie and dark tonight, more so than it ever is. Something didn't feel right but I ignored it and stared at the front desk camera for a few seconds as the vent on the roof of my office turned on. The front desk camera shows the desk with the wall behind it. The wall has a lot of expression to it, with multiple picture frames and accessories on it. You have the front glass door and the waiting chairs beside the desk. It was a good view of the room so if anyone was trying to hide, I could easily find where they were. I flipped to the next camera, which is the storage room. There are just a ton of boxes in this room with some open space. It's not an interesting room to look at whatsoever. I flipped to the next camera. The next camera was this big dining room. There are a lot of tables and an abundance of sections for seasonings, toppings, and desserts that you can get for yourself. This means that the next camera is, of course, the kitchen. It's pretty much a standard kitchen with a freezer in the back with its door open. I never actually noticed the freezer like this before but I didn't bother looking closer because I figured the door was always open at night. 
Oh, why do I continue working here? I grumble to myself. I flip to the next camera. And when I did so, there was a loud bang. I nearly jumped out of my seat. There was a bang that sounded like it was coming from the kitchen that I heard from the camera. It was so loud that the sound came out distorted from the speakers, and it nearly blew my eardrums out. I turned the speaker volume down to make sure that I wouldn't wake anyone up. I flipped back to the kitchen camera to check the noise out. I didn't see anything. The kitchen looked the same. So I took a closer look. Nothing was knocked over. Everything looked the same. And then a knock. At first, I couldn't tell where it was coming from. It was hard to locate, but then I heard it again. And this time, I was able to direct it to the freezer. I stared at the freezer and tried to zoom the camera in to look inside. To see what was causing the noise, but I didn't see anything. It was only pitch black in there. The heck? I murmur. I listen closely to see if any more noises begin, but I don't hear anything else. It's quiet now, but almost too quiet. I zoom out from the freezer to get a whole view of the kitchen to make sure that it wasn't coming from anywhere else, but I didn't see anything. The kitchen was empty. There wasn't anything in there to cause any noises. I flipped to the dining room camera to see if it wasn't coming from in there, and I still didn't see anything. Nothing was knocked over or anything. I was starting to think that I was just hearing things, and that I was being stupid, but I heard another noise coming from the kitchen. I flipped back to the kitchen camera and looked frantically, but still, there was nothing in there that I could see. At this point, I knew there was someone or something in there. But at the same time, I couldn't be sure because there still wasn't anything that I could see anywhere in there. I redirect my focus to the freezer. The sounds had to have been coming from in there. There was no other way. The freezer was so dark though, so I couldn't really tell. I wanted to go down to the kitchen to check it out because I could technically do that if I wanted to. And then a blab. I heard my phone ring in my pocket. I accustomed myself from the current situation and pulled my phone from my pocket to see who was calling me. It was my best friend, Jeremy. I sized it pick up and I put him on speaker. Hey, what's up man, you at work? Jeremy started speaking into the phone. Surprisingly pretty energetic considering that it was 12 in the morning. Uh, yeah, I said into the phone, still paying close attention to the camera. Hey, you sound tired. Are you good? Something going on? Jeremy says, a little more serious now. I rub my face. I was already getting tired and I wasn't even a quarter into my shift yet. Nah, yeah, I'm fine. I'm just hearing noises coming from the kitchen and the camera and I'm trying to figure out what it is, but I don't see anything. You sure you looked everywhere in the camera? Yeah, I'm sure. Ah, uh, maybe it's nothing. You're probably just hearing things. Wait a minute, why did you call me? Oh, you know, I know nothing happens on your shift, so I figured I would call you to get through it. But I guess something is happening now. It's silent for a moment as I sit back in my chair and just think. This didn't make any sense. I keep my phone on my hand while I lean back and keep looking. 
I mean, I could just go if you'd like to get back to your work. Now, stay in the call. Okay, I can help too. I don't have experience in this field though, so I don't know much, but I'll... There's a scratching sound coming from the kitchen. I immediately snap back alert and look around in the kitchen. What the heck was making these noises? Jeremy, you heard that, right? Yeah, what the heck? I heard it. I continue looking and start thinking that the only solution to find out what was going on was to go and check it out myself. Not something that I wanted to do, as this was getting extremely creepy, but I probably had to do it. Hey, listen, I'm going to go down and take a look at this myself. I can't really see anything on camera. I open the bottom drawer of my desk and look for my flashlight, but there was so much junk in there that my flashlight was hard to navigate. Ah, dang it. It's going to take me a minute to find my flashlight. Hey, put me on FaceTime real quick. I can look so nothing goes out of sight. I think about it and I figure out why not. I go into the call and switch it to a FaceTime call and I turn my camera on. Whoa, it's dark in your office. Jeremy laughs. I don't laugh back so Jeremy kind of stops slowly and awkwardly. Yeah, but here, you can look. But you're not going to see anything. I flip the phone camera so Jeremy can take a look at the camera. I hold my phone up so he can continue looking while I lean down to look for my flashlight in the drawer. I listen to Jeremy hum as I move my hand around the drawer, moving papers around. I don't know what I did with it last night, but it seemed to not be in the bottom drawer. I started to get frustrated, and I opened and looked through the middle drawer. Hey, what the heck is that? I perched my head up quickly. Huh? Look at the camera right now, dude. I raised my body and looked at the camera, and I saw what Jeremy was talking about. In the freezer, I saw what looked like a person, but their eyes were an immense white color, almost glowing and looming off the camera. I saw them move their body around as they started staring directly at the camera. Hey, don't go down there, I... Jeremy shakingly stops mid-sentence. I have to, I have to get them out, it's my job. I can't just let them stay in the freezer, dude. I continue looking for my flashlight, but I keep looking at the camera, not letting whatever it is out of my sight. It was still staring at the camera, almost staring right at me. Hey, I'm telling you right now, that thing isn't human. It's just a guy with bright eyes. I can get him out of here. Have you ever seen a man with those kind of eyes? Think about that. I don't think this thing is a human. Don't risk it. I have to. It's my job. You're just overreacting. Hold on. What the heck? I keep my phone pointed at the camera, but I slowly lower it as whatever was in the freezer starts to reveal itself. A lanky figure that looked like it had black goo for skin stepped out of the freezer, continuing to stare at the camera. It had a mouth, but it didn't have a nose, and for being lanky, it looked like it had some muscle in its arms. Jeremy was right, it wasn't human. It had spikes on its back and its eyes were unnaturally white. It was almost hard to look at. It looked like its skin was almost drooping. I was lost for words, paralyzed in fear, unable to let any words out. I wasn't sure what I was looking at. I was finally able to say something. 
Jeremy, are, are you seeing this? Hey, I gotta go, I'm sorry. I can't stand this call. But take my word, don't go down to the kitchen. I don't care if it's your job. I don't want you dying, man. Jeremy then hung up abruptly. I slammed my phone down on the table. My best friend had left me all alone to deal with this thing and I didn't know what to do. I was still staring at the camera and I looked back at it, not able to do anything else. It was like someone had frozen me in time. Time in general felt frozen. I was going to listen to Jeremy though. No way in heck I was going down there. I didn't care if I lost my job. I wanted to cry though. I wanted to curl up in my seat and just silently sob. I was basically powerless in this situation. This creature was making me feel powerless in itself by simply looking at the camera. It had no expression on its face, no movement, not doing anything, just staring, like it was actively looking through the camera lens right at me. I watched as the creature fully opened its mouth and formed a crooked, sinister smile. Its teeth were ragged but sharp and nasty, like they hadn't been brushed in years. They almost looked like wood. It was an ugly smile and it looked horrific. When I finally stopped looking at the camera, it just turned around and started walking around the kitchen in circles, around the middle counter. It was staring ahead as it paced, but even with the random movement, it looked like it knew what it was doing in a way. It was freaky and disturbing, and my heart was beating fast because I also felt like everyone else in the hotel was in danger. In that moment of thought, I heard quiet footsteps coming from the entrance of the dining room. I looked at the creature one last time and it was doing the same thing. I flipped to the dining room camera briskly and saw at the entrance of the dining room a little boy walking in, looking around a clueless. I knew the kitchen was right next to the dining room and this boy was in serious danger. I didn't know what the creature was capable of. I didn't know if it would do anything, but I didn't want to take any chances too. It didn't look like there were any other adults around. This kid had just waltzed in. The sounds must have lured him in. I looked down at the bottom drawer again and took a box cutter that I saw and stuck it in my back pocket. I wasn't going to listen to Jeremy anymore because I couldn't bear to see a little kid in the same room as a monster, especially knowing what the consequences might be. I didn't continue looking for my flashlight. I opened my office door and I peeked out. Every door on the floor was closed. People were still asleep. I breathed a sigh of relief as I tiptoed out of my office and down the hall toward the stairs. I looked at the stairs the staircase led directly down to the bottom floor. I put my foot on the first step, making a loud creaking sound. I winced but continued down with no issue. My heart was pounding, feeling like it was going to explode at any second. I wasn't doing this to be a hero. I was doing this so nobody would die tonight. I didn't want to die either, but I also figured that, that this is my job, even if I didn't sign up for stuff like this. I walked to the dining room door and started to hold my breath. I walked faster towards the door and walked in cautiously. I looked at the open kitchen and saw the creature still walking around the counter. Still staring ahead, but it was walking a little slower now. I stepped back in fear, 
Not wanting to go in anymore, but if it didn't see the boy walking around, it probably wouldn't see me, right? The creature was mumbling something, but it didn't sound like words. It sounded like raspy noises. Like he was trying to talk, but he couldn't put any words together. It didn't sound normal. I slowly walk into the dining room, fearing for my life as I start to walk across the entire dining room, looking for the boy but keeping my eye on the creature at the same time. I try my hardest to not cause a creak in the floor, because I don't know if this creature would hear it and then go after me. I took another look at it. It walked around the corner multiple times without seeing me. I look closely for the boy as I hear the creature's movement slow down, more as I turn the corner to the other side of the dining room. I see the little boy in the middle of his side, staring directly at the creature in awe. It was like he was admiring it. My eyes widen as I look at the boy and at this point, he had seen me and directed his attention to me as he smiles. Hey mister, how are you? The boy says loudly at me. My heart drops and I look at the creature, who is now not moving and is now directly staring at the boy. I don't say anything back to the boy, instead standing in fear, the creature now walking out the side kitchen door towards the boy. I know something horrible was going to happen to him if I didn't do anything. I reach into my back pocket and I grab the box cutter. The creature was now out of the kitchen and he was taking slow, steady steps towards the boy as I take one last look and throw the box cutter at it. The blade of the cutter hits the creature across the face and he instantly stops all of his movement. The boy was now looking face to face with the creature, his face a mixture of excitement and terror, and I could see what looked like blood coming from the side of the creature's face. I wasn't looking at the boy for long, as it started to slowly turn its head towards me. Its bright white eyes were like daggers looking at me, and I knew that I was its target now. Looking at the box cutter to the other side of it on the floor, it then looked back at me and gave me a snarl. It gargled at me as it started to chase me on both feet to my surprise. I ran quickly and started running as fast as I could towards the front kitchen curtains. This thing wasn't that fast, but I knew that it could catch up to me if I slowed down just once. I heard it move even closer towards me. If I hadn't intercepted it as quickly as I did, I might be dead right now. I had goosebumps on my arms as I blasted through the curtains and ran towards the freezer, which was closed now. I opened the freezer as fast as I could, but when I tried opening it, the door got stuck. Crap, I say, trying to force it open but it wasn't budging. It takes me a couple of seconds but I eventually opened it, as the freezing air hits my face like a pile of rocks. The creature meets me in the kitchen and I meet it face to face. He was even more hideous and terrifying up close. I went to grab it but this thing was strong. The creature grabs me and throws me into the freezer as it raspily yells at me. I hit a metal cabinet back first and fall to the ice cold floor, getting the wind knocked out of me. I was in pain but I was also so cold. I needed to get out of there. But once I got back to my knees, I heard the freezer door close and click, signifying that it had been locked. 
I got up and went to the door and tried opening it, but it was no use. The creature must have locked it. He had to have been in here multiple times if he knew how to lock it. I started coughing from the cold and I started panicking because I knew that I was going to die in here from hypothermia if I couldn't get out. I heard the creature moving in the kitchen and I felt defeated but it was hard to decipher anything out there with the cold air deafening my ears. I put my head down and tried thinking but just a second later the freezer door had opened and I saw the little boy in front of the freezer, his hand on the handle. Oh, quick, mister, get out, he says urgently. I was surprised, but I also listened and I got out. I didn't see the creature at first, yet I felt its presence in the kitchen still. I look around for a second before going. Come on, we have to get out, I say to the boy, starting to run out of the kitchen before I hear heavy commotion coming from behind us. Before I made it out of the kitchen, I turned around and saw the creature holding the little boy by the neck. Before I could do or say anything, I watch as the creature sticks its hand down the boy's throat and rips out his vocal cords right from his body like he was pulling a plug from a TV. The creature let the boy fall to the floor as the boy started coughing and crying. I started shaking uncontrollably. I didn't want to move. It was like I didn't know how to move. I look at the little boy on the floor who was curled up in a ball and then back up at the creature. I look at his hand and see the boy's vocal cords laid out in his palm. The creature raises the vocal cords as he opens his mouth and sticks the boy's vocal cords down his mouth. I watch in disgust as I watch him move his hand around in his throat and finally pull his hand out. The creature looks at me and I hear him clear its throat and I realize the creature couldn't speak before. The creature continues clearing his throat before finally saying something to me. I close my eyes in fear. You shouldn't have come down here. The creature speaks in a deep, raspy, monstrous voice, setting fear in me as I try to search for words to say, but I didn't know how to respond. I start hearing multiple footsteps outside of the dining room. The creature looks at the wall and then back at me. The creature leans down and grabs the boy by the foot. The creature proceeds the chuck the kid down towards my feet as he continues crying. I jump at the impact the throw made as I slowly back up out the kitchen, my mouth agape. I just wanted to speak. I hear the creature start making disgusting, weird noises while clearing his throat. Right as the doors to the dining room swing open, I hear the creature skitter away, out the other dining room door and to only God knows where. I turn around and see multiple people, maybe five or six of them, all in the dining room looking at me. Are you the night guard? A middle-aged man says to me, looking at my uniform. I nod my head. Um, I, yes, I am. What the heck are you doing down here? We heard all kinds of noises. The same man says. Well, you see, I couldn't even explain what happened. I hear the boys start crying louder and everyone's attention goes towards the kitchen curtain. A woman in the back of the small crowd goes towards the kitchen and goes in. I get nervous and helpless about everything that transpired. 
and I hear her gasp. I put my head down and sit down on the floor as everyone else rushes in to see the boy. You monster! The woman starts yelling at me as she carries the boy out, looking at me with nothing but hatred in her eyes. What did you do to my son? I look at her. Ma'am, I didn't do anything to your son. Something else. I don't finish my sentence. Well, we'll see what the cops say about that. The police end up showing up and they immediately started questioning me. At that point, almost everyone in the hotel was out of the rooms and asking everyone else questions. Even the manager of the hotel was called to come by. The vibe was dark and gross when most people started figuring out how the little boy's vocal cords were ripped out of his throat. But the bad part is, people started thinking that I did it. I told the cops the whole story, but the whole time they looked pretty skeptical of what I was saying, looking at me like I was some sort of lunatic. I even told them that everything was on camera, so they told me to show them. I led them to my office and to the computer where everything would be stored. I clicked play on tonight's camera recordings, and there was no data saved. What? I say. I feel the cop's eyes moving on to me by the second. I click out and click on the day's date again to go back in, but again, it says no data saved. This didn't make any sense. How could the footage not be saved? Yeah, I think we've seen enough here. One of the cops says, There has to be some way that we can recover the footage. I say, but the cops grab me and take me away from the computer. Hey, sorry, but the family already wants to press charges. Even if your weird story is true, you're not going to be able to get out of it. So, here I am, sitting and writing this while waiting to hear a court date, feeling helpless because everyone is against me and doesn't believe me. My question, though, is how was the footage not saved? The only way that could have happened was that someone manually had went and deleted it all, which never happens. Nothing made sense. But I still have hope that there is some way to recover the footage so I can show people the truth. Even with that aside, I still have to live with the fact that I let a boy's vocal cords get ripped out by a disgusting monster. I had to watch it happen firsthand. And something that terrifies me even more is that the creature is still out there. And I don't know where it is right now, but I pray that I don't run into it anywhere else. I got fired from my night guard job at the hotel, and I got trespassed too, so if it's back there again, then I'm for sure not going to see it. But whoever the next night guard is most likely will. I hope I'm not coming off as crazy, and I'm not sure if anyone on here will believe me, but in case you don't, think about this. How can a regular guy stick his hand down a boy's mouth and rip his vocal cords out? That's not a natural thing to do. That's something only a monster could do. It's even scarier knowing that the creature was probably lying in wait the whole time. Its whole goal in the first place most likely was to steal someone's vocal cords. I mean, it wasn't even saying anything before. And it's going to be scary sleeping at night knowing that I was supposed to be the victim. I don't know though. And I don't know if I do want to figure out its goal. The boy can't tell the same story either because he literally can't speak. It would take way too long for him to be able to speak again, but I've heard that he might not make it.
I hope he does, but after that throw that that creature did, uh, the impact and the force that it had, I won't be surprised if the boy doesn't make it out of the hospital. The creature is still on my mind. I can't get it out of my head. It's like it's feeding on and infesting my brain, manifesting its image into my mind forever, and I just have to live with this night. And I might be in debt or perhaps maybe even in jail, but I have a good lawyer so I might be fine, but my public image will never be the same again. I know Jeremy believes me, but what can he do to change this? I don't think he took a screenshot of my FaceTime video, I even asked him. Even with the trauma I most likely have to face in living in fear from the creature, I guess this serves as a lesson to me and everyone else reading this. Never become a night guard. I'd like to take a minute to talk about one of our sponsors, HelloFresh. In case you haven't heard, HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit, and for good reason. They send you farm fresh, pre-portioned ingredients and seasonal recipes right to your doorstep. I found cooking to be so much more enjoyable ever since I first subscribed, and I've never looked back. Right now you can savor every last second of summer with HelloFresh's delicious seasonal dishes. Make sure to also gear up for the busy fall season with over 55 weekly options. One of my personal favorite things about HelloFresh is the massive amount of variety when choosing your meals. The other night, I whipped up a teriyaki chicken bowl with garlic rice and bok choy. HelloFresh never fails to deliver on fresh and succulent ingredients. It was absolutely delicious. These guys are the real deal. As I mentioned before, Green Chef is now owned by HelloFresh, and with a wider array of meal plans to choose from, there's something for everyone. I love switching between the brands, and now my listeners can enjoy both brands at a discount with me. Go to HelloFresh.com slash MrCreep16 and use code MrCreep16 for 16 free meals across to 7 boxes and 3 free gifts. Again, that's HelloFresh.com slash MrCreep16 and use code MrCreep16 for 16 free meals across to 7 boxes and 3 free gifts. Thank you to HelloFresh for sponsoring today's podcast. If the world goes dark, don't go outside and whatever you do, never let them in. Written by Ghost at the Feast 22. We were never a very religious family. My grandmother was though, and through her is where my family got our second-hand religion. She lived with us for the last four years of her life, and I know that I owe my own life to her. Had it not been for her constant teachings, I'd be dead. I know that as strongly as I know my own name, I tried to tune her out, like my parents and brother would do. But what little bits I was able to retain, stuck, dug deep into my soul, waiting for the day that I would need them. I never would have believed that I would ever need them, certainly not at the age of 20. It's been a year since it happened, and while the few of us that have survived try and forget, I've not been so lucky in those attempts. 
It's not just the trauma or the memory of those three awful days. I don't think it's even the guilt of surviving when so many didn't. Although the memories and guilt are still there, still fresh like a burn that hasn't healed. No, I think more than anything it's the knowledge that it all will happen again. And this time, it will happen on a larger scale, in a place much larger than my own town, with a meager population of 1,307. Next time, it may be the world. They'd called it a freak occurrence. Occurrence. That word suggests something average, something still normal. This was nothing like normal. This was a nightmare. But occurrence was the word they used. A freak accident. They used that word too. An act of God. A CO2 was the culprit, they had told us. A deadly cloud of CO2 that had built up in the bottom of our lake. That deadly cloud was responsible for the deaths of 1,289 people. Men, women, and many children. There were just 18 survivors only one of which was a child. Eighteen. We didn't even fill the bus that was used to transport us out of town, away from our home, our families, and our lives, away from the bodies that still littered the streets and fields as we drove by, the many that had gone outside, possibly for help. For those of us who experienced it, the CO2 theory was a bit hard to swallow. It was worse than that. It enraged us. It was a laughable excuse, one made to quiet the media, quiet any fears and prevent hysteria. We tried to argue against their claim, but our accounts were quickly written off as effects of the gas. How could a single town be covered in darkness when the rest of the world was still functioning as normal? No one would listen, so we all stopped talking. We were given money, a new place to live, but we none of that doesn't matter where we go. It'll happen again, on a much larger scale than when it dies. How many will be left then? I want to tell you my story, not just to unload it off my conscience, although that may help. My true motive is that maybe my story will help someone somewhere. Maybe a few someones. They may just hear my story and like me when my grandmother's teachings, they might just retain it and keep it for the day that their world goes black and demons walk the earth. It all went dark one morning in June. I was living with my brother and a friend of ours and we were all quickly shoveling cereal into our mouths before we went our separate ways to work. One second I was staring into the colorful mess of my fruity pebbles and the next, darkness. The kind of dark that makes you wonder if you suddenly and inexplicably went blind. And that's exactly what I thought. I dropped my bowl, hearing the crack of the glass on the countertop and the feel of cold milk running down my legs. And I could do nothing else but stare. In a cold fear like I hadn't felt since I was a 12 year old and I had almost choked on a gumball. I brought my hands to my eyes and waved them, frantically rubbed them, opened and closed them, as though these things would somehow cure my blindness. Yes, I thought that I had gone blind. That is, until I heard my brother Aiden cry out, 
followed by his own bowl of cereal crashing to the floor. This was immediately preceded by Kyle, screaming in more shattered glass. The first few minutes after it went dark was chaos. Screaming panic, bumping into things and knocking them over. Obscenities hurled out into the void. No real coherent thought entered my mind then. It was all madness, terror, were we dying? I waited to feel my air cut off or the loss of my ability to stand to move, but it never came. Only the darkness. So thick and black that it almost felt as though I could reach out and touch it, feel it on my fingers like velvet. Before that day, I never realized that I had never actually seen darkness. Not truly. No matter how dark you are imagining, it was so much worse. I was pressed up against the living room wall for the first few minutes, desperately trying to see anything, and seeing nothing but the void. I heard my brother and Kyle screaming, colliding with furniture and sobbing. Faintly, I could even hear screams from outside, explosions in the distance. Still, somehow in all that noise and fear and chaos, I heard my grandmother's voice. Not out loud and not in my head, but a memory of her voice. Somehow, it reached me at that moment, like a lifeline. It was a memory of my grandmother in her bed, her precious Bible in her lap, the room smelling a gentle mix of her face cream and peppermint candies. I was 17 and painting her fingernails hot pink, while she talked about God and heaven. I was doing my best to tune her out when she had stopped speaking and gripped my hand. It had been so sudden, so unexpected that I almost dropped the bottle of polish on her bed. Emmy, listen now, cause this is important, she had said. She had been getting sicker. The cancer had made it to her spine, her legs and lungs. But not her brain. Not yet. But for a split second, I thought it had. But the clarity in her gray eyes, the strength in her grip, and the urgency in her tone pushed that worry from my mind. There will come a day, likely not too far from this one, that you may experience something terrible. There will come a blackness to the earth, a darkness so profound that any who look upon it shall tear out their eyes and die. It will last for three days, less a night. During that time, you must not go outside, nor must you look outside. Stay away from the doors and windows. Cover the windows and lock all doors immediately. You must not speak to anyone outside. The demons will try to trick you. They can mimic voices. They will try to lure you out. You must not fall for these tricks. There will be no light. The only light will come from blessed candles. One will be enough to last the duration, and it will not go out, not even if the house should fall down around it. During these days you must pray, and ask for forgiveness, and pray for the souls on the earth to be spared. Many will die. Use holy water, pray, and by God do not go outside. She said these things seemingly in one breath, 
a feat not easy for her at the time when saying more than a sentence meant having to stop and catch her precious breath. When she had finished, she released my hand and looked down at her fingernails and smiled. What a lovely job you've done. Can you get my water, Em? My mouth is very dry all of a sudden. And that was it. For days, weeks even, I wondered if I had somehow imagined the entire thing. But a slight scratch in my hand from my grandmother's ring was proof that I had end. I slowly forgot about that conversation. But after her death, my mother gave me a box of my grandmother's things that she had wanted me to have. I kept it in the closet, though I honestly never believed that I would need them. I remember that day and my grandmother's warning with almost perfect clarity. It calmed me in that moment of total panic. I took a deep breath and still shaking, still blind. I called out to my brother and Kyle. It took more than a few tries of shouting their names before they finally stopped. It was Aiden who answered. His voice was trembling and breaking, as if he were on the edge of madness. I guess we all were. You need to stop and stand still, and I need you to listen to me, okay? I said, my own voice stronger and calmer than I felt. There was a moment of silence, except for their ragged brass, and still the faint screams coming from somewhere outside. Were they closer now? I was about to speak again when he finally answered. Okay, he said. I could hear the desperation in his voice, like he was relying on me, his little sister, to somehow fix them all. Kyle, you too. Are you there? I asked, and I could hear him sniffling. Yeah, he half-whispered. Okay, now I'm guessing that you both can't see. I can't either, but we're okay otherwise. I don't know for sure what's going on, but we have to try and calm down if we're going to figure it out. I said. Calm down, Kyle said, as if he couldn't understand how I could expect them to be calm. Em, we can't freaking see. I know that, but screaming about it isn't going to help. We need to. I started, but Kyle interrupted me. What we need to do is call the freaking ambulance, he shouted. I wanted to tell them that it wouldn't do any good, but I still didn't know yet. What I felt was that we were running out of time, as if somewhere an hourglass had been flipped, and the sand was falling much too fast. Come on, Kyle yelled, and something crashed across the room. There's no signal. Anybody got signal? His voice was dripping with desperation, just like Aiden's. I pulled my phone out of my pocket, and despite feeling in my gut that there would be no signal, I tried. I tried because I was just as desperate for help as they were. Making a phone call, even one with just three numbers while blind, wasn't as easy as it sounds. I tried to remember where the phone icon was, tried to mentally recall where the 9 and one would be. I tried a dozen times or more, but it didn't work. I heard Aiden mutter the same, and once again, we were back at square one. And then a scream pierced the quiet. This one wasn't the faint screams from outside. This one was coming from Kyle's room. Oh crap, Kyle said. Jenna, I forgot she was here. 
he said. A second later, his bedroom door flung open and a crying Jenna stumbled down the hallway. When Kyle called her name and they found each other, through hitching sobs, she told them that she was blind. Something had happened to her eyes. It took a long time to calm her down, to explain that we were all blind. She was scared and she wanted to leave to call her father. But just like everybody else's, her phone had no signal. After a while, she was finally quiet, still crying but softly. Alright guys, I know you're scared and so am I. But I feel like something bad is happening outside and if we don't secure the house, it's gonna get in, I said. Instantly, I pictured the face of a demon that I had seen in one of my grandmother's books, and I was filled with ice-cold terror. What the heck are you talking about? Kyle asked. What's going to get in? I don't know, but my grandmother warned me about this, said that it would happen one day. I never believed it, but... I let out a shaky breath. Kyle snorted. Oh, the Bible nut, he said. I felt my body tense. I wanted to slap him, but I probably wouldn't even be able to get to him without falling over the mess that they made. Watch your mouth, I said. She wasn't a nut. She might be right. So tell us, what did she say was happening? He snapped. Kyle, shut up and just do what she says. We got nothing else. Aiden said, finally breaking his silence. Emma, tell us what you need us to do. I felt a brief moment of relief. I pushed myself away from the wall, standing on my own in the void, and said, Help me get to my room. I have to get something out of the closet. It took more than five minutes just to get to my bedroom. Traversing through the wreckage that was our living room was difficult. We tripped more than once. But once I made it to my room, the closet was easy to get to. And the box, marked with my name in red sharpie, and my grandmother's handwriting, was even easier to find. It was as if she were guiding me through the black. Guiding my hand in hers like she had so many times before when she taught me to sew. I sat on the floor at the box in front of me, and I ripped the tape off. Inside was her Bible, her favorite passages marked with notes scribbled on the margins. There was a cross, the one she always wore, three rosaries, all of them blessed, and the thing that I needed the most, what I had stumbled through the dark to find, a blessed beeswax candle. I gently lifted it from the box, carefully unwrapping it from the newspaper. Then we very carefully made our way back to the kitchen, where we capped the matches. I felt the matches touch my fingertips, and I ripped one out of the book and struck it. I felt the heat on my fingers and smelled the sulfur, but I saw no light. With trembling fingers, I felt the wick and slowly brought the match to it, my heart pounding so hard in my chest that I thought it might burst free. And just like that, just as sudden as the darkness came, there was light. I saw the face of my brother before me, his hair tousled, and his shirt torn at the collar. He had a small cut over his eyebrow, and he looked very afraid. And Kyle was staring around the room at me, at the candle in my hand. Oh, thank God. Thank God, Aiden whispered. We're not blind, Kyle said stunned. 
No, we're not, I said, saying a silent prayer, grateful that this had worked. We could see. But that relief was immediately replaced by terror. That meant that this really was happening. It was coming. The light was bright, much stronger than a candle should be. It was like a beacon of hope. I set it up on our TV stand, yet somehow it lit the entire floor. We should go outside and... Kyle started, already moving towards the front door. I quickly grabbed him by the waist, wrapping both arms around him tightly. No, you can't go outside. No one can. Not until the sun comes up, I said. Em, what's happening? He said, turning to face me. I let him go and looked around the room, careful to avoid looking at the windows. We had blinds, but I didn't know if just looking through the thin slats was enough to kill you. Somehow, I thought it was. I looked at all of them, my own fear reflecting back at me from their faces and said, First, we have to cover the windows, all of them, and close your eyes when you do it. If you look, even by accident, you'll die. I don't know how, but you will. I thought that they would protest, call me crazy. But they all nodded and together we gathered blankets and a hammer and nails and with our eyes shut tight, we covered every window. Afterwards, we locked the doors and used the sofa and Kyle's dresser to barricade them. I prayed that it would be enough. When we had finished, I told them everything that Grandma had told me. It was obvious that Kyle didn't believe a word, but Aiden did. I could see it on his face. Jenna just looked terrified and confused. We argued. Kyle thought that we needed to get out, get to a neighbor or something. But I was adamant that we were not opening that door. Not for anything. He thought taking a peek out of the window wouldn't hurt us. It couldn't hurt us. But it would. I knew it would. The one thing that we could agree on was staying together. We gathered our mattresses and made beds on the living room floor. We felt safer together. Time passed by. Hours, maybe a whole day. It was hard to tell without a way to gauge the time. Clocks didn't work anymore and with no sun or moon, it was like time no longer existed. We did have running water, though Jenna felt that we shouldn't drink it, thought that it could be contaminated. She was sure this whole thing was some kind of attack. Aiden read a book. Kyle tried to sleep. Jenna relentlessly tried to get through to anyone on her phone, trying even social media, every app. But none worked. She was getting more and more panicked about not reaching her father. It worried me. I knew that we would have to keep an eye on her. I held my grandmother's cross and I prayed. Sometime later came the screaming, a woman, and she sounded as if she were being torn apart. She sounded close, too close. And we all sat up and listened with fresh fear. The screaming seemed to go on forever. It sounded as if it were happening right out in front in the street. When it finally stopped, I tried to picture the woman who had made those screams. I wondered who she was, if I had seen her maybe a neighbor. And then someone knocked, first on the front door, fast and loud, 
Then on our front window, hard pounding like with a fist. I prayed the glass wouldn't crack. We all looked at the door with wide eyes. All of us praying that whoever it was would just go away. The knocking stopped after a few minutes, but we still waited, too afraid to speak. We all jumped when we heard the voice, so close to the front door that I couldn't help but picture something terrible, too terrible to even understand. Standing on our porch with its lips pressed to the door as it spoke, so close it felt like it was inside with us. Hello, I know you're in there, I can see the light. A woman's voice. Was it the same woman? The screaming woman? Aiden shook his head at us and we all nodded. No one spoke. Please, it's dark. So dark out here. I saw your light, please just let me come in. I don't know what's going on. She said, pleading. We said nothing. Tension in the air so heavy it was hard to breathe. I felt guilty at the thought of leaving the woman out there in that darkness, but I remembered my grandmother's words and held tight to them. Why won't you answer? The woman begged, and she sounded as if she were crying. She knocked again, just one rap on the door, and then silence. We strained to hear if she went away. The only sounds that we could hear were our own panicked breathing. It took an hour or more for us to speak again. It was Kyle who spoke first. Think we should have let her in? He asked. No, I said quickly. We can't open that door for anyone. The demons will try to trick us. He scoffed. Demons, Emma. Are you even hearing yourself? He asked. And Jenna began to cry. You can believe what you want, but no one opens that door, I said. He stared me down and I wondered if I'd be able to stop him if he tried. This is crazy. It could be dangerous out there. She might have had a phone that works, he said, wrapping an armor on Jenna. It is dangerous out there. That's why we don't open the door, I said. And Kyle started to say something but Aiden held up a hand. Em's right. We can't open the door. We don't know who's really out there, he said, standing we need to eat. More time passed and we ate peanut butter and jelly sandwiches and drank the last of the milk before it went bad. Jenna only picked at her food and she didn't drink her milk. Aiden hadn't spoken much. Even Kyle was quiet. He slept a lot or at least pretended to. I continued to pray as my grandmother told me to do. Eventually, we all fell asleep. We had all awoken from our restless sleep sometime later by knocking. Not just knocking, but pounding. Someone, whoever pounded on our door, sounded terrified or angry, like they wanted to break the door down, like they were throwing their body into it. I briefly wondered if it was that same woman from before. In between the thundering on the door, there was a sound, something I struggled to hear, to isolate among noise. I thought that I almost had it, but the pounding stopped and with it, so did the sound. I don't know why, but that mysterious sound terrified me more than the hammering against the door did. Hello, is someone there? A man's voice. 
I know you are, he said, and somehow I knew that he was smiling when he had said it. There was an attack. Lots of people died. I'm going door to door to look for survivors, to take them to safety, he said. Between each thing that he said, faintly was that sound again, and now I could make it out. Like something wet crawling up the sidewalk, wet hands, wet feet, slapping against the ground. I looked to the others to see if they had heard it, but I could see that they hadn't. They were listening to the man. They were believing the things that he said. They wanted to. I wanted to. But I held my grandmother's cross and knew that he was lying. If I leave, no telling how long you'll be in there then. And there may be more attacks to come. He said and still he was smiling. And through each word, something continued to move towards us. Something quiet and stealthy. That thing, that wet thing crawled ever closer only moving when the man spoke, using his words to cover the sound of its movement. Couldn't they hear it? Alright then, I guess I'll be going. Wait, we're here! Jenna called out, jumping up from Kyle's mattress, nearly falling over her own feet. There was a pause and then an almost laugh, as if something that had never heard a laugh before but tried it anyway. That thing that inched closer to our door had laughed, but there was no humor in it. My stomach twisted. I felt dizzy. I grabbed my mattress for stability. Hello, I almost left you. How many of you are in there? He asked. What's your name? Jenna ran to the door. I reached out to stop her, but she ignored me. Four, where are you taking survivors? Do you know my father, Frank Mercer? She asked her eyes twinkling in the candlelight. That's a lot of questions. I don't have time to go over them now. Not at the door like this. But there are many survivors left. Why don't you open the door and I'll take you to them, Jenna? He said. Was there a hint of annoyance in his voice? Aiden ran to Jenna and pulled her back away from the door. The man had said her name, despite no one telling him. But Jenna didn't notice her care. She kicked at Aiden's legs, but he was stronger. Stop! I want to see my dad! She screamed. Kyle and I tried to help, grabbing her arms and holding her down on the mattress. I'm going to leave, the man said. What hands? Moving faster now. Stop, babe. Please stop. Kyle whispered to her. She did stop then. Laying still, panting, eyes still focused on the door. Aiden and I left Kyle to console her. The door was also our only focus. Leave. We're not going with you, Aiden said, his tone hard and stern. The man made a clucking sound with his tongue. Well, okay. If you change your mind, I'll be on the street checking houses for a bit, he said. A moment later, we heard the sound of him walking away, down the steps, down the walk, past the thing that crawled towards our house. Did he see it? Jenna, you can't talk to them. They're lying. You have to wait for the sun to come up. I said, knowing how crazy it all sounded, even to myself. For a split second, I wondered if I was wrong, 
if there really was a man out there looking for survivors. But I remembered the sound of him ramming into our door, the sound of him smiling, the way that he said Jenna's name, that wet thing. Just shut up, Am, she said, rolling under his side away from us. We let her be. As long as she was still, we didn't have to worry about her opening the door. Or so we thought. God, we were so stupid. So focused on the man on surviving on the dark that surrounded us that we forgot to watch Jenna. She had waited until Kyle and I fell asleep, until Aiden went to use the bathroom. I woke to the sound of the couch being dragged across the floor. By the time that I had opened my eyes, she was already unlocking the door. I screamed and hurriedly covered my eyes with my hands. I heard Kyle curse, stumbling up from his mattress. I heard Aiden running down the hall. Close your eyes, I screamed, and prayed that they had heard me. I heard Kyle shouting for Jenna, and the unmistakable sound of the door slamming open. Sir, Jenna's words were cut short. So fast, it was like someone had muted the world. I laid on my side, eyes squeezed tight and my hands pressed against them. And then I heard her screaming, a sound that I'll never forget. She screamed and screamed and screamed. And then she was laughing, laughing and screaming all at once and crying too. The sound of what hands were close now, even closer than Jenna's screams. It's ripping me. She screamed and laughed. It's taking it all out. Her voice had changed near the end, like something big crawling up her throat. The ripping, tearing, licking sounds were almost unbearable. Finding it stopped, those wet feet slapping against the sidewalk, dragging whatever was left of Jenna along with it, while she somehow still gurgled and giggled and cried. I was too afraid to move, but the thought of leaving that door wide open, the void and its inhabitants able to gaze in at us was worse. I was stealing myself to get up and close it when I heard someone moving towards it, and then the door slammed shut. Oh crap, Aiden yelled, breathing hard. Why didn't we watch her? I opened my eyes and saw my brother locking the door and dragging the couch back up against it. He fell against the wall panting, his eyes red and swollen. Kyle lay on the floor, his eyes shut tight, his hands over his ears. I sat up and reached out to touch him, but he recoiled away from me and began to scream, like a switch had been flipped. And we tried to calm him down, but what the heck do you tell someone who just heard their girlfriend being ripped apart by demons? It'll be okay. And we let him cry and scream for a while, maybe hours. Every once in a while, we would hear something knock on the door, on a window, something wet moving around the side of the house. Once we heard something laugh, low and demonic, Kyle quieted eventually. It wasn't long after that that I heard a familiar sound, one that I had heard countless times, a melodic jiggling a sound I knew well. I ran to my room and grabbed my phone off the floor by the closet. Somehow it had worked, but not for long. It went dead again in my hands the moment that I had picked it up, the screen flickering before going black. 
but it was enough for me to see my alarm had been going off, long enough to know that we were in real trouble. That no matter how bad we thought it had been, it would get worse, much worse. Because as I looked down at my now dead phone, I knew that somehow we had only been in the dark for one day. That meant we had two more to go, two more days with that at our door and evil poised to knock. And somehow I knew that they would find a way to get in. Time, we learned, didn't work the same in this dark. It seemed to drag on forever. Every minute seemed like an hour. An hour felt more like ten. We would sleep for what felt like hours, sometimes even longer. And yet we had no way of knowing. We were afraid to eat. Afraid that we were eating too soon. We didn't want to run out. So we only ate when we felt truly starved. We couldn't trust the dead clocks or phones, so we decided to trust our bodies, hoping that it would know. Sleep didn't come easy for us. Instead of lessening as time went on, the noises outside only grew. Screams from terrified men, women, and yes, even children were never far from our ears. They died horribly begging for help and in many cases laughing too as if it were so painful so unbelievably agonizing that their minds couldn't process it completely and so they laughed as they died while sometimes describing their horror to listening ears we sat in the light of the candle our only protection crying and trying not to listen and there were other sounds too Sounds that I still think about when I'm alone in my bed. Growls, but not from any earthly animal. Growls and laughter, maniac and wild, from the mouth of something almost human but not. Something, many somethings in a fit of lunacy, gleeful and crazed as they ran through the streets. Delighted at the opportunity to be freely walking up here, with us. And they laughed as they attacked anyone unlucky enough to be outside. And when their victims cried in pain and begged for mercy, they laughed even more. There were quiet moments too, which somehow scared me more than the screams and frenzied laughter. Moments when the things outside went back to being stealthy, trying to sniff out their next victim, or try to lure them out if there were none to be found. And I tried to imagine what reasons a person would have for leaving their homes and stepping out into the void. I could find none. I couldn't fathom a cause to leave the safety of the candlelight. I would, of course, after it would all be over. I would talk to the other survivors and there I would hear of many who simply walked out into the black for one reason or another. Most didn't even have a candle. Not a blessed one. For them, the dark was everywhere. To them, walking out wasn't a foolish decision. It was the only decision. I prayed a lot, sometimes out loud. I found it quieted the vicious giggles that lingered by our house. I prayed we could ride out the rest of the dark without going through another incident, without something coming out to the door again. But I think I knew that wasn't going to happen. I knew in my heart that something much worse was waiting out there for us. Something worse than the laughing things or the growling things. 
I somehow felt the wet thing that got Jenna was close and wanted to get in and would find a way in. Kyle worried me. He was quiet all the time and he hardly ate. Aiden was anxious, hardly able to sit still for very long, spent most of his time pacing the hallway. I chose to stay as close to the candle as possible. Its warm light was my only security. During a quiet moment while my brother was pacing the hall, chewing his fingernails down until they bled, I went to sit on Kyle's mattress to talk with him. He had been staring at the ceiling for too long, refusing any food or water. I had a terrible feeling he was on the edge of madness. I didn't want to think about what that meant. I sat next to him and placed my hand on his chest. He still didn't take his eyes off the ceiling. I'm sorry about Jenna, I said, because I didn't know what else to say about it. I mean, what could I say? His eyelids fluttered for a second and refocused on the ceiling. Yeah, me too, he said. His voice sounded like a strange whisper, raw from the hours of screaming and crying, like someone who has gone too many days in the desert without water. We need you. You know that, don't you? I said. He did look at me then, turning at just his eyes. I know you're hurting, but promise me that you won't do anything stupid, I said. He exhaled a long breath, as if he had been holding it in for a long time. Maybe since Jenna ran out into the darkness with open arms. What, like run outside? He asked. His eyes were swimming in tears. Promise me, I said. He nodded and laid his hand over mine and squeezed it. I think this stuff's gonna end anytime soon, he asked, forcing a smile. I don't know. Time passes so slowly now, but it will end, I know that, I said. We just have to stay inside and wait it out. He nodded again. I stayed with him like that with my hand on his chest and his hand on mine for a long time. Finally, I went to stand, but he gripped my hand, holding me there. She was pregnant, he said, so softly that I almost didn't hear it. The weight of his statement was shocking enough, but then I remembered Jenna's last words, as the wet thing did whatever it did to her. How she screamed and laughed as it ripped her baby from her. I knew that's what it did, and I knew that Kyle knew it too had known it since the moment that she said the words. And I knew too that he would never be able to just grieve and recover. Not now. He would never be okay again. Looking at him, I think he knew that too. I felt a chill run through my body, through my bones. I tried not to picture it. Tried not to imagine it there on the lawn in the pitch black. Something so ghastly smiling down at her while that ripped her wide open and took out her kid. But these thoughts ran through my brain anyway and I couldn't stop myself from crying. We cried together, for Jenna, for their baby, for every single person we had to hear die, and all the people that we wouldn't hear but would die. When Aiden found us like that, he didn't have to ask what was wrong or if we were okay. He knew the answer to both of these questions. We all lay together, holding one another while the world came down around us. 
or so it felt. I think I knew that it was coming even before I heard it. I think we all did. Footsteps, like bare feet on the front walk, walking slowly, as if they were taking a peaceful stroll through the park. The footsteps stopped at the door, and a moment later there was a knock, three short raps. We didn't answer. We held each other tighter, willing it to go away. Three more short raps, just a bit louder than the first three. And then a voice, soft and sweet and not at all the voice that we had ever expected. Just three words were enough to nearly break us. Guys, it's me. She sounded so normal, like she had before. I think if she hadn't sounded so calm, so natural, I might have believed that it was her. But that wasn't Jenna. Guys, come on, open the door. She said again so calmly, as if she were just coming back from the store. Kyle sat up, staring at the door, eyes wild. I knew instantly that he would want to open it. Kyle, can you get the door? She asked, a touch of annoyance in her voice. Kyle, that's not Jenna, Aiden whispered, his hand gripping Kyle's shoulder. Kyle started to get up, but he stopped. He began to hyperventilate, his mouth hanging open, lips trembling. Kyle, babe, I need you to open the door. It's so dark out here, the voice said, soft and soothing. Kyle let out a strangled whimper, but he stayed on the bed, my brother's hand gripping his shoulder so tight that his knuckles were white. Kyle, you can't leave me alone out here, it said. And Kyle balled his fists and punched the mattress. No, he said, and it sounded as if the words themselves were painful. Dang it, Kyle, the voice spat. You're such a screw-up. You can never do anything right. You couldn't even help me just once. The longer it spoke, the less like Jenna it sounded. A twisted mockery of her. But Kyle crumbled on the bed, sobbing. Aiden and I held him as best as we could. But he didn't make for the door, at least. You're a screw-up. A lazy degenerate. Can't even get up and open the door for the mother of your child. The voice was screaming. Jenna's voice almost totally gone. Stop. Please stop. Kyle begged. It did. For a moment. As if it realized it had slipped out of control. Lost the facade that it needed to portray. You know, it said in Jenna's voice, I was going to leave you. I was. I knew you'd be a horrible father, but I felt sorry for you, so I stayed. And look what it got me. It spoke softly again, as if her was saying anything else that might have been comforting. I'm sorry. I'm so sorry, I... Kyle was saying, his head buried in the mattress. You are sorry. A sorry excuse for a man. And you always will be, it said. Go away, Aiden shouted, his body laying almost on top of Kyle. Just go back to where you came from. The voice was quiet for a long time. So long I thought it had gone away. I allowed myself to feel relief and began to relax my body that had been so tense that it hurt. But that was short-lived. Kyle, open the door, 
It said, do one thing right for me. No, Kyle, no. I whispered in his ear. He squeezed my hand, a sign that he had heard me. Kyle, do you want to know what it did to me? The voice asked, and I could hear its pleasure in saying those words. I sat up and moved in front of him, as if I could shield him from the words coming through the door. Stop! I screamed, but I knew that it would keep coming. It wouldn't stop until Kyle opened that door or was a broken heap on the floor. Oh, do you, Kyle? I know you've been wondering. Do you want to know what it did to me while you were hiding your eyes like a coward? It said. Kyle shook his head over and over, pleading with anything and nothing. No, he said again and again. It had reached up inside me, Kyle, to a place you've never been. It almost felt good. It took a hold of our child. Did you know that it was a boy? It asked, clearly enjoying itself. God, Kyle whimpered. But the voice continued. It took all of them, and it keeps taking and taking, and it'll take me to where it came from when this is all over. And it'll do things to me that the human mind can't even comprehend. And you know what? And paused, letting those poisonous words sink in. It will do it to our son, too. For eternity. All because of you. And Kyle was sobbing, tears and snot streaked his face. And I thought that he would lose what sanity that he had left. Get the heck out of here! I screamed throwing a plate at the door, letting it shatter. Oh, Emmy, our protector, it said, spitting the word out like rotten food. You think you know how to keep you safe? Keep them safe, it laughed, a horrible sound that I could feel in my teeth. You're all gonna die in there. You just don't know it yet. It banged on the door like a hammer smashing into it, and I thought for sure it would come crashing in. But it stopped, for whatever reason it did, and we were left alone with its words still hanging over us like an axe ready to fall. You gotta eat, I said later, trying for the umpteenth time to get Kyle to eat some crackers. How would you know, he said. He had decided to move his mattress back into his own bedroom, and he had been staying in there. We tried to talk him into staying with us near the candle, but he adamantly refused. He agreed to keep the door open at least, so some light would get in. Aiden thought that he just wanted to be closer to Jenna's things where they had slept together, but part of me wondered if he'd like to be in there, where the edges of darkness reached out towards him like fingers. Just eat a few crackers, please, I said. I had out the half-empty pack and he took it. These are stale, he said, chewing one and making a face. Better than nothing, I said. Come back out in the living room, it's safer there. He shook his head, popping the last two crackers in his mouth and tossing the wrapper. He closed his eyes, trying to sleep or pretending to. I went to his door, making sure to leave it open wide enough to let the light in. They lie, you know, I said. He didn't respond, but I knew that he heard me. He should be out here with us. I told Aiden, sitting on the mattress. The light's stronger out here. He's a grown man. He can choose where he wants to be at, he said. He probably needs time alone. Well, that can come after. It's not safe to be alone. Not while it's still dark. 
He rubbed his eyes, sitting with his elbows on his knees. He looked so tired it drained. He looked how I felt. When is this going to end? He asked. But I didn't think he was asking me. I put my arm around him and laid my head on his shoulder. I didn't have the answers. We fell asleep and when I woke, I almost forgot that Kyle had gone back to his room. I went to pop my head into his room just to make sure that he was okay. He was on his side, facing the wall. I thought about going over to make sure that he was alright, but I didn't want to bother him. I figured that he needed the time to mourn. He wasn't just mourning Jenna. He was mourning the loss of his child. His son, too. I used the bathroom and quickly washed my body with a washcloth and soap. I was too scared to get in the shower. The second that I stepped into the living room, there came a series of knocks on the front door. I froze. Aiden's eyes flew open and he sat up, looking for me. When he saw me, he relaxed a bit and motioned for me to come to him, a finger on his lips. I took a step towards him and it started again, like dozens of hands knocking at once. Emmy... I gasped. My mother, not really I knew, but her voice. Aiden and I exchanged a worried glance. Oh, sweetie, can you let me in? I quickly walked to the mattress and sat beside my brother, both of us trembling and holding on to each other. Aiden, open the door, it said firmly. We both knew that tone. My mother is a no-nonsense tone. And that tone used to get our butts in gear. But that wasn't our mother out there. It couldn't be our mother. We knew that it was coming. The anger, the cruelty, the lies. We were trying to prepare ourselves. Telling ourselves that it wasn't our mother out there. There was silence but for how long. The things in the dark never minded the wait. They enjoyed it. Relished it. Kids, your father's sick. He had a heart attack when the lights went out. It's sad, voice breaking. Mind to come and get you. He might, he might not make it. Aiden held me tighter and I pictured our father. Grabbing his chest in a panic after having gone blind. Or thinking he had. I pictured him grabbing for something to hold on to. Stumbling for my mother. And hearing her own terror as he collapsed. Was he really dying? Or was he on a bed somewhere, his life slipping away in the dark as we refused to let in our own mother? She's not our mom, she's not here, Aiden whispered, as if he could hear my thoughts. He repeated these words like a mantra, whether for me or himself. Emmy, Aiden, open this door immediately. I don't have time for this. Your dad is very sick. It shouted, beating against the door. Just go away. Can't you see that we aren't going to open it? Aiden screamed. The knocking stopped and silence fell over us again, but we knew that it wasn't going to last. Aiden squeezed me tightly, almost enough to hurt, but I let him. It felt good, safe, like when I was seven and he was eight, and we were riding the horror attraction at the carnival for the first time. He was scared too, but he let me bury my face in his chest, his arms wrapped around me. I could hear his heart hammering now, just like I could hear it then on that rickety ride. But this wasn't an attraction. This was real.
Do you really think that this door is enough to keep us out? The voice, it's a true voice, asked. If we truly wanted to come in, this piece of wood could not stop us. I couldn't tell if it was male or female. It sounded old, ancient, dead, like dry leaves. Aiden and I were shaking so much that my muscles ached. It shrieked with laughter behind the door, smashing into it once, twice, so many times that I lost count. And with every cracking of the wood, every groan of its weight on the hinges, it would shriek and howl with delight. It stopped just when I thought I couldn't stand another minute of it, but I knew that it lingered there, listening, waiting. Oh say, it said teasingly, how many of you are in there? There seems to be one missing. You haven't checked on him in an awfully long time. I felt my heart seize and Aiden stiffened against me. He's okay, Em. It's just trying to scare us. Aiden whispered to me. I nodded that I understood. He's dead in that room, you know. You left him to die and you call yourselves a friend, it said. I jumped up, pushing away from the security of Aiden's embrace. He stood with me, reaching for my arms. I could hear him talking to me, telling me that Kyle was fine. But he followed me anyway. The sweat on his face and the fear in his eyes braying the confidence in his voice. We hurried down the hall, that awful cackling following us the whole way. From the doorway, I could see Kyle still laying on his side facing the window that we had covered with a blanket. Kyle, Aiden called from the doorway. Y'all right? I waited for a reply for even just a shrug of his shoulders, but he was quiet still. I tried to swallow, but my tongue was so dry in my mouth. Was he breathing? I couldn't tell, not from the doorway. I took a step into the room. It felt cold, much colder than before. I forced myself to walk and I came around the bed and when I saw his face I knew that thing at the door was right. He was dead. His face was slack pale, his parted lips already turning blue. Tears stung my eyes and I was somehow on my knees. Aiden was beside me, saying Kyle's name over and over in disbelief. How? When? I said shaking my head. Why? Kyle's eyes were glassy and wide, as if he had died, surprised or very afraid. I crawled to the bedside and touched his face. It was cold, hard. I told him that we loved him, that he was a good friend, that he would have been a great dad. Aiden hugged him and we both cried. It was a bad way to say goodbye to someone we had known and loved since we were in middle school. It wasn't hard to see how he had died. A shard of jagged glass was lodged into his throat, and the mattress beneath was drenched in red. The coppery smell hung heavy in the air. We were about to cover him with a sheet, but something didn't feel right. A question that was racing through my head. Where did he get the glass? I searched his room, tossing things around, pulling open drawers, his closet, ignoring my brother's worried questions. But I found nothing, nothing broken, nothing missing a piece of jagged glass. And then it clicked. The window. He had broken the window. I spun to face it, 
the blanket still hanging over it. I stepped up to it, slowly running my hands over the blanket, feeling for any broken section. I knew that it would be there even before I felt it. An empty piece, the size of a small dinner plate. What is it? Aiden asked. Our eyes met and without any words, he knew. Oh my god, he said. He yanked me by my elbow, dragging me from the room. We could hear something laughing at the window as we tried to barricade the door with Aiden's dresser. I hated leaving Kyle alone in there in the dark, but we had no other choice. He had given the evil outside a way inside. Why had he done it? Why the window? I asked myself that question dozens of times as Aiden and I huddled together in the living room. I still ask it. Did he look outside? Did something make him do it? I couldn't imagine Kyle risking our lives unless he had no control over his actions. But what did I know? After he lost Jenna, Kyle lost a part of his mind too. Aiden and I prayed together. We ate the rest of the crackers and Kyle was right. They were stale. We ate them anyway and tried to pretend that our friend wasn't dead in the next room. Tried to forget that there was a broken window to the evil outside. We were trying to sleep when I heard the scratching. Faint at first and then louder until even Aiden heard it. We sat up as a noise came from the hallway. The sound of a dresser being moved away from the door. We were frozen there in the bed, waiting for something to walk around the corner, shambling towards us. We heard unsteady footsteps moving up the hall. Aiden grabbed my hand and I knew that he was thinking the same thing that I was. We were going to die here, in this house. There was nowhere to run. I thought of the woman that we heard screaming in the street, of Jenna, her laughter too. Would I die like that? Would I be in so much agony that I could only laugh? Would I have to listen to my brother laugh too? When the thing rounded the corner and stepped before us, framed by the candlelight, I couldn't help but scream. It looked at us and grinned, blue lips stretching impossibly wide. The shard of glass still jutted from his throat, pale skin stained red. Those glassy eyes watched us, dead eyes but still seen. He reached up and pulled the shard from his throat, the sound of tearing flesh unbearable. I was waiting for him to lunge at us, to attack us with the shard. But he stood glaring at us with his dead eyes, accusingly. You let me die, they seemed to say. You let Jenna die, my child. He took a shuffling step closer, that grin betraying the hate in those eyes. The hysterical laughter was all around us then. There seemed to be hundreds of them outside, surrounding our house. Kyle, Aiden said, all color drained from his face. He almost looked like a corpse, like Kyle. Kyle, still smiling, reached for the candle and held it, his other hand still gripping the bloody shard that had killed him. He brought the candle to his face so that we could see just how empty his eyes looked, how dry and deathly pale his skin had become. And then, with grinning lips, he blew the candle out and let the darkness swallow us up.
My friends and I went on a hunting trip. Something was in the trees mimicking us. Written by Corpse Child. Remember, don't let him out of your sight. Randy whispered in my ear. I had him in my sights, an eight-point buck. It looked at me, locking gaze with me, straight through the scope of my rifle. No, Darla. I won't, I whispered back. I leveled the barrel of old Darla to the deer's front, poised for a direct heart shot, good and clean. One shot and boom, it was venison for dinner. I could already taste it. Nah, you ain't going nowhere. My finger wrapped around the trigger. Right as I was about to claim my prize, however, the deer jerked its head off to the right towards the trees. It made its little mewling noise before turning tail and darting off into the woods. I fired the shot, but by that time it was too late. It was long gone and disappearing completely from sight. Son of a, I thought. I sat back then, already feeling the shame of defeat. Me and Randy had been trying to find game like that for months. Most of them, though, had to be an older, wiser, knowing, better than to be out in the open grazing like that. It was a particular hot spot for hunting. The best here in Grandview Pines, and they knew it. He shoots and he misses, folks. Randy jeered, chuckling. Adam the Deadeye stares at Destiny in the face and blinks. Yeah, yeah, I said, sighing and having to laugh at him myself. I looked to him, opening the cooler and grabbing and cracking open a cold one, a cold Coors Light to be exact, before taking a refreshing swig. You want one? Hey, you know it. He replied eagerly before plopping down beside me and grabbing a Coors. Taking another swallow, I looked ahead where the deer had ran off. Hey, I said, nudging Randy. What do you think it was that did it, huh? He looked at me, raising his eyebrow. That scared the buck off like that, I mean. What do you think it saw? He frowned, thinking for a moment, before shrugging and answering that he had no clue. I mean, heck, you saw it, didn't ya? That son of a gun was mine. I had him. He downed a swallow of his beer, chuckling to himself. I glanced around at the trees behind us. I mean, you see anything out there? Hear anything? Don't look at me, he said. I was watching you the whole time. Heck, you got a closer look at the thing than I did. I could barely see it from this far out. You at least had the scope. I barked a lap before gulping the last of my gores. I started patting my pockets for a pack of cigarettes. I started to panic a bit when I couldn't find them. Where the heck are they? Crap, I bet that I freaking went and left them at the... Ahem, <clears throat> Randy said, holding up a pack of eagle greens. I breathed a sigh of relief and took them. He laughed and remarked, No wonder you lost the buck. You can't even keep up with your own cigarettes. I grinned, rolling my eyes while taking out a smoke and lighting up. I then sat back again, taking a nice, long drag of it, savoring it. Now, pal, I saw it. 
I squinted my eyes to the tree ahead. I saw it in its eyes. You didn't see him. See his eyes. I had him and he was mine. Till something, somewhere went and spooked him. I dragged again on my cigarette before turning to look at Randy again. You think maybe that he saw me? He shrugged. I don't know. Like you said, I ain't the one that saw him. That being said, I doubt it. You were nice and low to the ground and were at least a good 35-something-odd yards out from where it was standing at. I frowned, taking another drag. Well, what the heck did that thing see? What made him run like that? I turned again to him. And you sure you didn't see nothing? He shook his head. Hear nothing. Nobody. I've been telling you, I ain't seen nothing, heard nothing, felt nothing. All I knew was one minute, you're about to bag a nice prize in the next. You missed the money shot and the thing's gone off in the woods. Oh, oh crap, I conceded. I tried thinking again about what could have possibly went wrong. If it didn't see or hear me, then what happened? Randy gave me a hard clap in the back. Ah, don't worry, there'll be another. I looked at him like you just told a bad joke. He laughed and said, oh, Come on, give me a break. I'm trying to cheer you up somehow. What, you'd rather I lie to you? Tell you that it'll come back. Yeah, thanks buddy. I answered, chuckling while flipping the bird. He laughed and joked, I love you too, pal. For about half an hour after that, the two of us just rested there while the sun slowly started to set. Him downing all but three of the remaining Coors lights while I smoked another cigarette. I felt Randy nudge me and point to one of the trees, signaling that he needed to drain the lizard. I nodded and went back to watching the sunset. Everything was calm, quiet, and relaxing. That was the beauty of Grandview Pines, you see. Everything just had this natural way of making you feel all nice and cozy while out in the wilderness. No internet, no cell service, nothing. You didn't need none of that. Not in a place as beautiful, as peaceful, and as just plain alive as Grandview was. That's how it was for me, anyways. Just me in the calm, quiet wilderness. Despite this, for whatever reason, maybe because I was a bit of a sore loser when it came to this sort of thing, after all, there was a reason Randy had nicknamed me the Dead Eye, and it wasn't an accident. But I couldn't for the life of me stop thinking about that dang deer. I mean, what the heck had happened? There's no way that it saw me and it couldn't have heard me, right? Randy had said so himself. So then, what did it see? Flicking the rest of my current cigarette out, I peered around to the trees behind me again. By this time, the sun was pretty well gone, making seeing anything in the densely packed woods dang near impossible. Anything, that is, except for this weird shape perched high in one of the trees right in front of me. I didn't know how, but somehow, who or whatever this thing was, it was able to stand out against the already darkened forest behind it. It was a weird shape, like sort of human, but not... I guess the best way that I know how to describe it was that it sort of looked like a giant lumpy black blob. 
a spack that was perched on the branch with four little stubs that I guess you could call limbs. Sticking out of the top of it was a single lump that I guess was supposed to be its head or something, with two large white holes that were beating down on me, watching me. I squinted my eyes, moving to get a closer look. As I did this, I vaguely noticed it shift forward in my direction from its position on the branch. I rubbed my eyes. My eyes had to be playing tricks with me, I had thought. But nope, it was there, right in front of me, sitting in the tree. And then I saw the thing raise both of its little stubs to its face, rubbing its eyes. There's no way, I thought. Did that thing just copy me? I stood up. It raised up from its crouching position on the branch. My eyes widened. What was this thing? And what was it doing? I wasn't really scared or anything. Sure, but I was confused as all heck. I looked over to the cooler at the remaining cooler's lights. For a second, I thought that I had somehow maybe drank too much even though I was pretty sure that I'd only had the one. I looked back up to the trees to see it snap its own head back to face me. It did it again. I stood frozen. It stood frozen staring back at me. I raised my right hand up and waved to it. It copied me, raising its right stub to wave back at me. And then I dropped my right hand and started waving the left. I copied that too. I began to get curious, wondering just how far I could go with this, just how well it could keep up the monkey see, monkey do routine. I started jumping up and down. It started jumping as well on the branch. Then I decided to try to do jumping jacks. It copied that too, moving its stubs in the same motion. Then, not knowing what else to try, I decided to take my shirt off and start jumping around, this time shrieking and scratching my head like a monkey. Sure enough to my shock, it copied me perfectly, and when I say perfectly, that's what I mean. It wasn't like the way that a little kid mimics something they see grown-ups do, or characters on TV. No, this thing copied me verbatim, shot for shot, and they could do it at the exact same time that I was. In other words, this thing was like my reflection in a mirror or something, except of course that it looked nothing like me, or anybody or anything else for that matter. Odd, sure, but it was nothing too alarming, I guess. At least until I could hear it start shrieking too. It sounded just like how I did, distinguishable by the fact that my noises usually sound rather hoarse instead of the usual high-pitched shrieking that you would usually hear. Now, I was a little unsettled by this. Again, copying my movements was one thing, but perfectly mimicking my voice too. Something about that just wasn't sitting right with me. I didn't know what to do. I felt like trying to move anymore was a bad idea. Like letting it mimic me anymore would give it some sort of knowledge or power or something. I wasn't sure, but that got the idea staring up on my head that that was why it was there. 
Is this thing trying to spy on me or something? I was still standing there, locked in this little staring contest, when Randy called out to me from the woods. Hey, how'd you get back here so quick? My eyes finally broke from the trees to look to him, confused. Huh? I asked. Just a minute ago, you were right behind me. I figured that you were going to the bathroom or something. I turned around again, though, heading back, and I couldn't see you no more. He then eyed me up and down and asked what I was doing, why I was standing around bareback. I just looked back at him, more than bewildered myself. Randy, what the heck are you talking about? I asked. He raised his eyebrow. It was pretty clear by then that neither of us knew what the heck was going on with the other. I wasn't in the woods. He gave me a skeptical look. Well, then I really must have drank one too many, but I swear, God is my witness. I saw you in the woods just now. I shook my head. I'm telling you, who or whatever you saw there wasn't me. He stared at me disbelievingly again for about half a minute before holding his hands up and conceding. He then sat back down while I stayed standing for a moment longer. Briefly, I chanced a peek back up to the tree limb from earlier. The thing wasn't there anymore. Wait, where'd it go? I squinted as hard as I could, first up at the branch and then inside the woods themselves. Nothing, just the dark, densely packed forest, quiet and empty. I started wondering again if I hadn't just been seeing things. I mean, I was pretty sure that I had seen it or heard it. One drink wouldn't have messed my head up that much, I didn't think. But at the same time, I was also pretty sure that there was nothing there before. Nothing that could have scared off my deer. I was also pretty sure, like, whatever the heck was in that tree, it weren't normal. What was that thing doing up there on that tree branch? That question caused my body to break out in a violent shiver. Looking into the woods, I felt like despite seeing nothing there, something was staring back at me, watching me. You okay there, pal? Randy asked. Huh? I replied, snapping back to him. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, I'm okay. You sure? He asked, raising his eyebrow. Because you're looking like you just saw a Bigfoot sauntering around in the woods there. I rubbed my eyes and chuckled dryly. I don't know, man, maybe I'm just getting tired or something, you know. He snickered and reached into the cooler, pulling out one of the three remaining beers. Here, he said, popping it open and extending it to me. Take this, maybe it'll take the edge off a bit. I snickered and took the beer, donning the gulp. He was right. At the moment, at least, I felt able to relax a little again. I sat back down next to Randy, looking up at the now fully nighttime sky. Everything was nice and peaceful again. I made it through only about half my drink when I ended up nodding off. I woke up a little later, needing to relieve myself, so I groggily shambled over to one of the trees. As I was doing this, though, I heard a noise coming from one of the trees off to the left of me. It, too, was the sound of someone peeing on the ground at the base of a tree. 
Randy, I called out, still half asleep. Is that you? I peered around the tree that I was peeing behind and instantly tensed up. There it was, that thing from the tree. Like before, it was somehow distinguishable. Despite everything else around it already being extremely dark, it peered around the tree that it was behind to face me, its large white eyes boring straight through me. I saw that both of its arm stubs were pointing down in between its leg stubs, looking like it too was going to the bathroom. Who or what are you? I cried out to it. I still don't know why that I did that. What good was that going to do me? I didn't know. At the same time, I didn't know what else to do either. In any case though, I'll say that I ended up wishing I hadn't done that because the next thing I know, I hear the dang thing shout back to me, repeating what I had just said using my voice. I started backpedaling back towards the camp. It then mimicked this by taking steps of its own backwards. As it went, I watched it start to sort of twitch and wriggle, shifting. I then noticed that it started to change, transforming until it looked exactly like me. This made my heart stop and beat, my blood freezing almost solid. I couldn't believe what I was seeing, even for just the brief moment that I saw it. That was me. It had turned into me. I was staring at myself. And this wasn't just some crap imitation either. No, this thing could have passed itself off as me in public, no problem. Every detail of my face and my body, as well as my voice apparently, this thing was a picture-perfect carbon copy of. Just before it disappeared completely from view farther back in the dense woods, I heard it shout back to me in a perfect impersonation. I had him. He was mine. Till something somewhere went and spooked him. As soon as it was gone, I turned and broke into a full-on sprint back to the clearing. Almost immediately, I heard thumping footfalls coming in hot pursuit behind me. I didn't dare look back, afraid of what I would see. I just kept running, but not able to really see much of where I was going. Eventually, I ended up tripping over what I imagined was a protruding root and face planting in the ground. I was out like a light almost instantly. I'll admit, I was almost shot when I actually woke up again that next morning. I was sure that I was done for. That thing having been so close on my heels. But sure enough, by God's graces, I was awakened I was alive. This relief soon changed into momentary embarrassment when I found that my clumsy butt hadn't tripped over a root at all, but instead at the beer cooler. I had actually made it yet because it was so dark, and because I was so focused on running for my life. I likely would have kept on running right up into the morning, getting lost in the other stretch of woods. I actually found this kind of funny at the time, just the sheer irony of that situation. That would be just my luck, wouldn't it? I thought, snickering. I went to the overturned cooler for a beer when I found all of them empty, having all been drank. Now I was alarmed. Well, more like aggravated. That little weasel. He knows better than to go in. 
My thoughts froze when I actually looked over to Randy's spot, only to find no Randy. Randy, I shouted, cupping my hands around my mouth. Hey, where are you? Come on so I can kick your butt for drinking my last two beers. This was met with only silence at first, and then from the distance inside the woods, I heard Randy's voice shouting back. Don't look at me. I was watching you the whole time. I stood for a moment, confused. What the? I called out again. Randy. I heard his voice shout back again, this time laughing. No wonder you lost the buck. You can't even keep up with your own cigarettes. I started walking in the direction towards where I was hearing it come from. Randy's voice continued laughing. Randy, hey, come on, cut it out, man. Where are you? Oh, come on, give me a break. I'm trying to cheer you up somehow. What? You'd rather I lie to you and tell you that it'll come back. I stopped again, frowning. No, normally, I would have just figured he was messing around with me like usual. Just another one of his little pranks after, no doubt. Busting his butt laughing after seeing me trip over the beer cooler in the dark. While barreling out of the woods like a bat out of there. But something about this wasn't striking me as funny. Besides the fact that all my beer was gone. Something felt off. I couldn't tell why at first, but it did. It felt wrong. I heard Randy's laughing again coming from the woods. It was him, his voice, his laugh, but at the same time. I was getting the horrible feeling that maybe that wasn't Randy out there. That got me thinking about the incident with me in the woods the previous night. That thing, the black, shadowy, whatever it is, was able to sound just like me. Not only that, it was able to look like me too. And then it hit me. Didn't Randy say that he saw me following him in the woods before that? I realized too that who or whatever was out there was only repeating back to me things that Randy had said to me earlier. That was until I heard the voice scream. What in the name of? Trailing off into a muffled scream. Despite my suspicion, I couldn't just stand there anymore. I know what you're probably thinking too. It's a trap, yeah, yeah. But I just couldn't risk the fact that that might have actually been him. And now he was in some sort of danger. I broke into a sprint into the woods where I was hearing the muffled screams coming from. I started calling out for him. Randy, Randy, where are you? I ran deeper and deeper into the woods. Despite it not even being past noon yet. The tight gripping of the trees all around me. Something that's always been a distinct characteristic of the trails here in Grandview Pines. It caused the area to get darker and darker. The further into them I ran. Randy. Ran. I stopped when I heard Randy's laughter again. Oddly, and despite being in the same general vicinity of where it had been coming from a minute ago, it still sounded distant. Maybe a better way of describing it would be to say that it sounded less like he was actually there laughing, and more like I was hearing a recording of it. Like I said, I could tell the voice was his, but I could also tell that it might not have been coming from him. I started throwing my head around frantically, 
trying to find either Randy or whatever his voice was coming out of. Eventually, I lit up and my blood instantly turned to solid ice. Above me, perched on a tree branch and staring down at me, was Randy. And he abruptly had stopped laughing, and he just stared at me blankly. And I stood still, my heart pounding furiously, trying to punch straight through my chest. I didn't know whether to run or to try calling out to him, to it, to whatever. Uh, Randy? I asked, shuddering. His mouth opened, stretching a lot more than it should have, and he started laughing again and said, Love you too, pal. My eyes went wide seeing this. I wanted to puke. That was his voice, his face. But I knew right then that wasn't him. What are you? What'd you do with Randy? I started breathing heavily. Adrenaline was slowly filling throughout my body. I could feel the urge to at any moment either charge up the tree at the thing, choking the life out of it and demanding to know where and what the heck it had done to my buddy, or turn tail and run out of there, all the way back to my truck at the bottom of a mountain. I'd end up choosing the ladder when its mouth opened again this time distending the jaws so far that Randy's cheeks began tearing apart. Then, from out the mouth, I watched two inky black stubs begin prying the jaws further and further apart, until I saw its lumpy head poke out and look at me with its white sockets. No sooner than I opened my own mouth to scream, the thing shot out like a bullet at me from Randy's mouth. Randy's skin deflated like a balloon, draping limply over the branch. Through some miracle, heck, more like divine intervention, I actually managed to move out of the way before it could latch onto me, and I ran back towards the clearing. Like before, I heard it coming after me, right on my heels. Actually, this time, I noticed it seemed a lot faster seeming to stay a lot closer to me than last time. I managed to break the tree line when I felt something sharp sink into my shoulder blades. This caused me to drop to one knee, crying out in pain. I felt the thing then reach one of its arm stubs around and begin trying to pry my jaws open. I tried in vain to force them off of me, but it was no use. Its grip, despite having no fingers, was strong. My jaw strained from the tension. Thinking quickly, I drew my hunting knife from my pocket and I swung it around, successfully embedding it into one of the thing's eyes. Sure enough, this caused it to let go, and I was able to get up and continue running. My pace was slower though, with sharp pain shooting throughout my body from my shoulder blades. Fortunately, this thing must have been too weak to chase after me because I didn't hear it or anything else coming up behind me. Despite this, I didn't stop until I had made it down the mountain where I had left the truck, parked at the opening of the trail we had originally hiked to the clearing from. This was four or five days ago now. I went to the doctor to have my back looked at immediately after leaving Grandview Pines. I wasn't sure what the thing had used to stab me like that with, 
but I wasn't taking any chances that it hadn't infected me with some sort of venom or something. I remember the doctor's look of, what the heck, when he saw my back. And I had the same expression too, when I saw them. Where my shoulder blades were, were now two large, dark holes that looked like someone had taken a drill to my back. Even freakier was the fact that they didn't bleed. When he had asked me what had happened, I told him that a black bear had attacked me and my friend on a hunting trip. I told him that it had gotten Randy and that I couldn't save him. This was the same story that I gave to the police and to the rangers too, the next day. As I write, they're still canvassing the mountain for his body. I hope they find it, but more than that, I hope it's actually him they find. As for me, while I've been back at home, I've felt awful since I left Grandview Pines. Those wounds on my back constantly burn, and I feel like the inside of me is sort of turning into jelly. I was up all through last night throwing up, and it hadn't gotten any better this morning. But that's not even the part that's scaring me now, the reason that I'm writing this. You see, it was this morning when I tried to turn on the TV to take my mind off of how sick I was feeling that the morning show came on. And as they were talking for whatever reason, I felt somehow forced to open my mouth and start repeating them. The worst part was, I was sounding just like them. During one summer, my friends and I found a deep and endless well, written by Sir Ulrich von Lichten. In the summer of 1976, I said goodbye to my mom, who never took her eyes off the magazine that she was reading. She simply gave a curt wave and said, You don't have to be home by dinner, but be safe and have fun. And then I walked out the front door and hopped into the passenger seat of the Red Challenger that belonged to my best friend, Jonathan Belvedere. Ten minutes later, Jonathan parked his Challenger outside the home of Rachel Lafferty, our other good friend. And seconds later, Rachel was getting into the back seat, a huge grin on her face. But there was a hint of sadness in that grin, like a rose that was starting to wilt just slightly. And then turning to both Rachel and I, Jonathan perfectly summed up why that sad smile was there. Well, boys and girls, it's the final summer, Jonathan said sagely. One last hurrah for the three musketeers. Oh, don't say that, Rachel said, and now she really did look sad. It's not the end, it's, it's, it's a new beginning, I added, giving them both a weak smile. Sure, Jonathan said, winking at us both and putting the Challenger in drive. To new beginnings. And then his Challenger sped off down the road on that bright summer day, loud and powerful, no doubt giving some of Rachel's neighbors alarm. In fact, one of Rachel's neighbors who was mowing his lawn shouted at us to slow down as we flew by. Everyone in town knew Jonathan's car. It was instantly recognizable due to the yellow smiley face that he had painted on the driver door. 
and we had all just graduated high school and this was the last summer before we each went our separate ways. Rachel would be attending the University of Madison in the fall. I would be attending the less prestigious technical college. But my parents were still proud that I was going to college anyways. Jonathan wasn't attending college at all. He was going to move to Milwaukee to work in an auto shop that his uncle owned. None of us would ever end up doing those things though. But as Jonathan's challenger bore us out of the suburbs like a bat out of it, we didn't know that. We knew that the times were changing to be sure, and that the three musketeers were splitting up. But there must still be good times ahead, right? And on that bright summer day, it was easy to believe that. Easy to believe in new beginnings. We lived in Dutchville, Wisconsin. If you were to visit Dutchville today, you would find a thriving town. That has all the hustle and bustle that comes along with strip malls and movie theaters that bring food right over to your seat. And there are apartment complexes everywhere. But back in the 70s, I'm not sure you could even quite call Dutchville the town. More of a hodgepodge of small suburbs. One school than one downtown area. And when you left all that behind, there was nothing but farms, fields, and roads. So many roads. An intricate web of roads that sprawled all across the county. And it was through that web of roads that we drove, blasting music in Jonathan's car and laughing. The plan was simple. We would drive around for a bit and then find a spot to hang out. But for how long did we drive? 20 minutes, 30, 45 an hour. I honestly couldn't say. Time seemed to move strange that day. I can only say that after an indeterminate amount of time, Jonathan slowed his car down. To our right was an old-looking gravel road. There was a frail-looking wooden street sign at its beginning. Written over the wood in crude black letters were the words, Sparrow Road. Sparrow Road, Jonathan said bemused. I don't think I've ever been down this road before. Yeah, me neither, I said, which was strange considering that ever since Jonathan had got his license a few years back, we had spent countless weekends driving around our small town. To discover a new road wasn't just bizarre, it was plain eerie. But Jonathan, who now had a look in his eyes that was not unlike some great explorer who had just discovered a hidden Aztec city, turned the steering wheel and the car lurched over the gravel road. The gravel made a terrible crunching noise underneath the tires. Um, maybe we shouldn't, Rachel said from the back seat. I've got a funny feeling about this. Rachel's funny feelings were not to be taken lightly. Once in 8th grade, we had discovered a fairly big tree in the woods outside of town. The kind of tree that was perfect for climbing. Jonathan and I began climbing the tree, but Rachel said that we shouldn't. That she just had a funny feeling was all. She got really scared and so Jonathan and I stopped climbing. And we left the woods with her. Not 30 minutes later, a surprise storm came over the town. When we went back into the woods the next day, the tree that we had been climbing had been struck down by lightning. The tree, which had seemed so large and ancient the day before, had now been reduced to blackened wood. And had we not listened to Rachel that day, Jonathan and I might have been burned along with it. There were other moments since then, smaller moments, but moments where Rachel's funny feeling came in handy. Maybe Rachel's right, I said, 
Oh, it's fine, Padre, Jonathan said, choosing to ignore Rachel's warning. He occasionally liked to call me Padre because one time in seventh grade, I jokingly said that I wanted to become a priest. The car began to pick up speed. What better way to spend the final summer than explore some strange roads, huh? We'll just cruise for a little bit and then find a place to hang. Rachel said nothing, but when I turned to look at her, she had a worried look on her face. I don't know how long we cruised down that terrible gravel road. I only know that the sound of the gravel crunching underneath the Challenger's tires seemed to grow louder and louder the more we went along, and Sparrow Road seemed to stretch on for an eternity. At one point, we came across an abandoned car. Looks old, Rachel said as we passed it. That was an understatement. The car looked ancient, like something from the early 1900s. Groovy, Jonathan said. He whistled and kept driving. But eventually, Jonathan did bring the car to a stop. On our right was nothing but a field of green grass, and on our left was the same, except jutting out from the grass just a few feet from the road was a stone well. This looks like a good a spot as any, Jonathan said turning off the car. We gathered up our goods, that is the beer that Jonathan had stored in the car, and got out. The stone well had a small roof over it, and just a little bit below the roof was a bar looped with a rope. On the bar's right end was a wheel crank that, when turned, would ease the rope down into the well. Sitting on top of the well's roof was a big black crow. It caught as we approached, and Jonathan shoot it, but it only flew a few feet away, and regarded us reproachfully with its head cocked to the side. The three of us looked down into the well, the mouth of the well was wide, very, very wide. I'll never forget the shivers that went at my back as we looked into it. You couldn't see the bottom of it. The stone walls seemed to go down for a few feet, and then there was nothing but blackness stretching into infinity. No sign of any water either. No plausible way to tell how deep it went. Not with your eyes at least. And there was something terrible about that darkness. You stared down into the well, and the well seemed to stare back. Hello? Jonathan yelled into the darkness and his voice echoed, and then it faded away. And trippy stuff, Jonathan said grinning. Creepy, Rachel said. You can't see the bottom. It's just a trick of the light, Jonathan said. And then turning away from the well, he took three beers out of his bag and handed one to both Rachel and I. We toasted and we drank. What road were we on? Rachel said sometime later. Huh? Jonathan replied. He was sitting on the lip of the well, smoking a cigarette. Rachel and I were sitting in the grass. There were crumpled beer cans all around us. And before we came onto Sparrow Road, what road were we on? Oh, Jonathan said. The end of his cigarette was beginning to droop plainly, and he ashed it into the well. I don't remember. And do you remember? Rachel said, looking at me. I shook my head and I tried to think, but I honestly couldn't remember. Yeah, neither can I, Rachel continued, and now she sounded as worried as she had looked. I don't know where we are right now. I don't like being here. We're on Sparrow Road, Jonathan said flatly. But where is Sparrow Road? Rachel responded. And Jesus, Rachel... 
Jonathan said, spreading his hands out. It's somewhere in Dutchville County, obviously. Yeah, maybe Rachel's right, I said. Maybe we should head back. Remember the tree... Oh, don't give me the tree thing again, Jonathan said. And he threw his entire cigarette into the well. I know you guys must think that you're so much smarter than me because you got into college and all. Jonathan, that's not at all. Rachel tried to say but was cut off. But I'm not as dumb as you might think, Rachel Lafferty. And if I am, then who better to recognize a dumb luck than a dummy himself? Because that tree thing that was just pure dumb luck. And you've been holding that over our heads for so long. And I do remember what road we were on. We were on Mulberry. Mulberry Road and then it turned on to Sparrow Road. But he didn't sound as if he believed it. And the three of us had driven down Mulberry Road multiple times. There had never been a gravel road that went off Mulberry. A terrible silence overtook the three of us. It was broken when Jonathan began laughing. I'm sorry guys, Jonathan said. I'm being a grade A a-hole right now. It kind of had been the whole drive, Rachel said but not unkindly as she was smiling. Some start for the final summer, huh? Jonathan said, meeting her smile. And then the three of us started laughing. It was the last good laugh I remember having. And then after our laughter had subsided, Jonathan said, Yeah, you're right though, this place is creepy. Let's head back. Really? Rachel said. Really? Jonathan replied. Memories are a funny thing. I played back what happens next in my head multiple times. Played it over and over again. Sometimes that stupid crow was back on the roof of the well. And when it caws, it surprises Jonathan. Other times, the crow isn't there at all. But regardless of the variations in my memory, the result is always the same. Rachel and I stand up in the grass. And as Jonathan gets up from the lip of the stone well, he loses his balance. His hand slips as he tries to grab the well. And he falls backwards. He falls into the well. Jonathan didn't scream as he fell backwards. He simply made a short, gasping noise. The back of his head hit the rope bar and then he fell down into the gaping maw of the well. Rachel and I immediately rushed to the well and looked down. There was no sign of Jonathan. There was one horrible moment where Rachel and I didn't say anything. I think because morbidly, we were both waiting for the sound of him hitting the bottom of the well. But no sound ever came. And then Rachel and I began screaming. We began screaming Jonathan's name, begging him to answer us, but there was no reply. Only darkness stared up at us. We need to help, I said. And then a sick realization came over me. Oh, Jesus, Rachel, Jonathan had the keys. I stared over at Jonathan's challenger. The yellow smiley face on the driver door seemed to stare back at me mockingly. I'll run, I said. I'll run as fast as I can to town and I'll get help. I was already beginning to move. Wait, Rachel said. Just wait. She walked over to the wheel crank and began to turn it. Rope began to pull down. What are you doing? I asked, mortified as Rachel began to tie the rope around her waist. And do you remember my cousin Anton? Rachel asked. Um, vaguely, I said. Look, Rachel. I went to visit him a couple of summers ago. 
My uncle had a farm and they had a ground well just like this on their land. Anton, he's a couple years younger than us and he's not that bright. Well, he fell into the well. I was the one that found him because I heard him screaming. My uncle told my aunt to go get help. But do you know what my uncle did? He went down into the well. He stayed down there with Anton for hours. Later that night, he told me that getting a person out of a well isn't the tricky part. It's making sure that they're still alive when you bring them up that's hard. Do you understand? Bringing Anton up wasn't the priority. Stopping the bleeding was. Jonathan's down there and he's probably bleeding. We can't just leave him down there. And I think, I think we're far, very, very far from Dutchville. Or from anyone. It'll take a long time to run and get help. If we both run, there might not be a Jonathan to bring up by the time that we get back with help. So before you leave, you're going to lower me down that well. And I'm going to help Jonathan because he's probably unconscious down there. And he's probably bleeding. Jesus Christ, Rachel, you want to go down there? It's not that deep, Rachel said, staring down the well. She sounded as if she was talking more to herself than to me. It's just a trick of the light. Wells are never that deep. The one that Anton fell into wasn't that deep. Rachel didn't mention that she had probably been able to see Anton at the bottom of the well that he had fallen into. There was no seeing the bottom of this well. Someone has to stop the bleeding. Rachel had swung both her legs over the well and was now dangling over the darkness. In some ways, she looked like bait that was about to be swallowed up by a great white shark. Or in this case, a great stone worm. Hey, you sure about this? I asked nervously and Rachel nodded. The moment that I reached the bottom, you run and get help. I put both hands on the crank wheel and began to turn. Rachel began to lower into the well. After a moment, her feet dipped into the darkness. For some odd reason, I expected her to make some kind of noise, like a person makes when they first step into a cold pool, but Rachel said nothing. A moment later, her legs were swallowed by the darkness, and then her torso. Rachel stared up at me with those bright blue eyes of hers, and then those two went into the darkness. Just a trick of the light. I stopped the crank for a moment and yelled down the well. Rachel, are you okay? Not being able to see her made me so frightened. I immediately regretted lowering her down and was about to bring the rope up. I'm okay, Rachel responded, but her voice sounded so far away, as if she was at the end of a very long tunnel, which didn't seem right at all considering that I had only lowered her a few feet into the well. Keep going. I continued to turn the crank, and deeper and deeper Rachel went into the well. Though I couldn't see it, I could only watch as the rope pulled down from the bar. I still haven't made it to the bottom yet, Rachel called up. At least this is what I thought I heard. It was incredibly hard to hear her now. She sounded so far. Wait, hold on there. Rachel, I yelled on the well. What is it? There came no reply except for my own echo. It, it, Rachel, 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 Rachel. if you don't respond, you don't respond I'm, bringing you, I'm up. bringing you up. Not being able to stand Rachel's silence and the horrible sound of my own voice, I immediately began to reverse steer the crank and pull the rope up. 
The moment that I did, I could tell that something was wrong. The rope felt much lighter than it should have, and I turned the wheel like a madman. I could already feel my fingers starting to blister. And then the end of the rope receded out of the darkness and into the light of the day. It was no longer tied around Rachel. It wasn't tied around anything, and Rachel was nowhere to be seen. I stared numbly at the end of the rope, which now looked afraid as if it had been cut or chewed by something. I looked down the well and that terrible empty darkness stared back. At some point Rachel had become untied and fell further into the well, but like Jonathan, there came no sound of her hitting the bottom, if there even was a bottom. I screamed on the well and I screamed for both Rachel and Jonathan, but again I was only met with the sound of my own echo. For one insane moment, I thought of lowering the length of the entire rope into the well, and then climbing down it like some kind of firefighter. But the thought disappeared as I stared down into the darkness. It was replaced by another thought. I could feel a strange pulling sensation in the back of my head, and as I stared down the well, it was almost as if the darkness was slowly rising to meet me. Just to fall in, the thought in the back of my head said. It spoke in a clear voice. Almost too clear to be only a thought. Just to fall in and ride at the endless well. Jonathan and Rachel are down here. They're falling and they'll always be falling. Higher and higher the darkness climbed. I continued to stare down at it as if in a trance. I could feel myself leaning over the lip of the well. Leaning further and further in. Just fall, fall, fall. I was so close to falling in when... I heard the sound of a crow cawing. It broke the trance. I immediately became aware of how far I was leaning over the well and I backed away. The crow and it was undoubtedly the same crow that we saw when we first came to the well. It continued to caw. It sounded like laughter. That was enough. I ran away screaming. I ran for what felt like an endless amount of time. At some point, though, I did reach the end of the gravel road, and I continued to run, searching for help, screaming for it. Nothing around me looked familiar at all, and there wasn't a soul in sight. The roads were completely empty. I think we're far, very, very far from Dutchville, or from anyone. When we had left my home at around 9.45 a.m., it had been a bright, beautiful summer day. When I finally stumbled across the diner, it was pitch black outside. When I first saw the diner, I wasn't sure if it was real. I had the same feeling that a man who had been roaming the desert might feel when suddenly he came across a beautiful oasis. Was it some terrible trick? A cruel mirage? I had been running around empty roads for who knows how long and now suddenly here with a bit of civilization. The diner had a bright red and neon sign on top of it that read, Shelley's Diner. It hurt my eyes, but I could smell coffee coming from inside, and that was a good smell. As I shuffled to the diner's entrance, I noticed the handful of cars in the parking lot. They each had Kansas license plates. I walked through the diner's front door like a corpse. I'll be with you in a second, sweetheart. The waitress was saying, and then she stopped when she saw me stumble through the door. I imagined that I looked like a corpse as well. Please help us, I said, and my voice felt weak. 
tears were streaking down my cheeks. There was only a handful of patrons in the diner and they all turned to look at me. My friends need help. God, please help us. I was in Short Falls, Kansas. That's what the waitress told me when I asked her where I was. I had been in Dutchville, Wisconsin in the morning and now I was in a small county that was at least 12 hours away. It's impossible, of course. There was no way that we had driven that far or in that direction. There was no way that any of this could be real. But the diner was real. The coffee that the waitress had given me was real too. And so were those license plates outside. I told my story to the patrons and they listened with rapt attention. When I had finished, a small murmur broke out in the diner. I could tell by the look in their eyes that none of them believed me. They regarded me the same way one might regard a sick dog. Ah, oh, son, I lived here my whole life, an older man said, and I never once seen any sparrow road. Another murmur, this one of agreement, broke out in the diner. I don't care if you believe me. Please, just help my friends. There had been a search. The waitress had called the Shortfall Sheriff Department and they listened to my story and when I was finished. They looked at me the same way the patrons of the diner had. But they did their due diligence. And they had even called the station in Dutchville too. And when they realized that I was telling the truth and that I was from Wisconsin, they did raise their eyebrows. And when I called my mom and they listened to me cry on the phone with her, that did more than raise their eyebrows. It caused their faces to turn white. I stopped looking so much like a sick dog to them. So, there had been a search and a collaboration between the Shortfall Sheriff Department and the Dutchville Sheriff Department was formed. And I had even ridden in the passenger seat with the sheriff, trying my best to guide him and backtrack my steps to that terrible gravel road. We drove around that small Kansas county for hours. None of the roads that we drove on looked anything like the roads that I had seen before. These roads were normal roads. They had normal traffic and streetlights. But those other roads that I had traveled when I fled from Sparrow Road, those had been deserted roads. Quiet roads. Eventually, Jonathan's and Rachel's parents both came out to shortfalls to help look. And that had been hard to face them. But they had never blamed me had never once questioned the validity of my story. That had been nice of them. Yes, there had been a search, more than one actually, but it all seemed to blur into one long, hopeless endeavor. And despite how long we looked, we never found any Sparrow Road, not in Short Falls, Kansas or Dutchville, Wisconsin. Jonathan and Rachel were officially designated by the state as missing, my story was eventually disregarded as more plausible theories came to light, theories that these states were more willing to accept. I had suffered some kind of heat stroke according to the medical experts that had examined me after. We had gone riding and maybe there had been a crash, or maybe they had ditched me. Either way, I had gotten separated from the car, and I had suffered a heat stroke, and ended up all the way in Short Falls, Kansas. Sure. And now my two best friends were simply missing. Falling, not missing. Falling. I did find that well again, however. Some years later. I never went to college, technical or otherwise. And my parents understood. Even in their sloped shoulders told me that they wished I would give it, what's the saying, the old college try. 
they understood my depression. Although we never called it that and spent most of our time talking around it. And so, instead of going to college in Madison, I hung around Dutchville, doing odd-end jobs here and there. And of course, I would always keep my eyes open for an old gravel road. Sometimes I swear that I would see it, only to blink and it would be gone. It was three years later when I found the well again. I was sitting on the back porch of my parents' house and nursing a glass of whiskey. I had actually put off drinking since that horrible day in 76. Despite my depression, I had never really felt the urge to drink. I had felt the opposite, in fact. In my head, I always saw those crumpled beer cans around the well. That had been enough to put off drinking for a time. But that night in 79 was significant because we were coming up on the three-year anniversary of Jonathan and Rachel's disappearance and the urge to ease that pain took over. So I took my father's a bottle of whiskey to the back porch and I began to drink. When I felt that malty drink go down my throat, I realized something. I didn't have to look for Sparrow Road or the well anymore because the well was inside me and it was deep. I thought that if I drank enough, if I filled the well enough, maybe Rachel and Jonathan would come rising to the top, rising like a geyser and then come spilling out of my mouth, just as young as the day they disappeared. That had to be true, because the idea of them falling down an endless tunnel for all eternity was too much to bear. They'll always be falling. And so I drank. I filled the well. A couple years later, I had been in a bar filling the well when a man in a trucker's hat walked in. The bar owner was upset that the man, because he had been late on delivering something to the bar, he was at least a day late on his order. The trucker explained that he had gotten turned around on his way. I'm sorry, Sam, the trucker had said to the bar owner. You know, it's not like me to be late. I'm always on time, but I just got turned around. Ended up on some crap on gravel road and it took me a while to find my way. Strangest thing, a bunch of abandoned cars on that road. What road? I had grabbed the man on the shoulder and he jerked around in surprise. He and the bar owner looked at me just like those other diner patrons in Short Falls had all those years ago. Hey fella, would you mind letting go of my shoulder? The trucker had asked and I tightened my grab. What was the name of the road? Well, I'm not sure. I don't remember. Was it Sparrow? Was it Sparrow Road? I could feel my eyes bulging in their sockets. The bar owner tried to peel me off the trucker, but the harder he pulled, the more I stuck. Hey, buddy, ease off. You said you saw other cars. I said, shaking the trucker now violently. Did you see a red one? A challenger? Bright recognition appeared in the trucker's eyes, and I stopped shaking him. Well, I did, the trucker said. At least I think it did. It was a red challenger. It, it had a faded yellow smiley face painted on the driver door. I screamed and I passed out. I woke up in the drunk tank and when I got out and headed back to the bar, the owner refused to let me enter. He told me that if I keep coming back and bothering his people, he would stop calling the police. And he would take care of me his way. I never saw that trucker again. On November 13th, 1999, I saw Rachel Lafferty. I was in a bar in Madison doing what I do best, filling the well. I'd gotten exceptionally good at filling the well by this point. 
If there is a Hall of Fame for Phil in the Well, huh? I was no doubt a first ballot entry. The Badgers were on TV play in Iowa, and it was the end of the third quarter. The Badgers had started a recent tradition where, between the third and fourth quarter, the stadium would play jump around by House of Pain, and everybody in the stands would, you guess it, start jumping around. They were starting that now. The camera was zooming in on one section of the stadium, highlighting the students jumping for joy. What I saw almost caused me to spill my drink. Almost, but not quite. Because a spilled drink can't be used to fill the well. Rachel Lafferty was standing in the very center of the section. Unlike the students around her, who were all wearing red, Rachel was still wearing the faded blue shirt and blue jeans that she had worn that day. And there was a piece of frayed rope tied around her waist. None of the other students seemed to notice her. She wasn't jumping, she was staring right at the camera, right at me, and she was mouthing something. We'll always be falling. Could you turn that off? I asked the bartender, turning away from the television. It's the Big Ten Championship, no way. The bartender responded, and then he went back to ignoring me. I finished my drink. Always made sure I finished my drink, and then I got up and left the bar. As I was walking out, Rachel was still on the television, mouthing words silently, and her eyes followed me the way a portrait does. Come fall with us. A couple years ago, I had been in a Barnes & Noble perusing their music section. People were giving me the side eye, no doubt because of the way that I was staggering around. I had been filling the well early that morning. I was flipping through their vinyl section when goosebumps ran up the back of my neck. When I looked up, Jonathan Belvedere was standing on the other side of the rack. He looked exactly the same as he did that day in 76. Same blue denim jacket, same blue jeans, same yellow t-shirt. He was fingering through the records casually, as if he hadn't been missing for 40 plus years. Some choice tunes here, Padre, Jonathan said. Good songs to fall to. Then Jonathan began coughing and made a terrible noise like a cat about to spit out a hairball. It almost faintly reminded me of the old gravel crunching under tires. And then he did spit something out. It floated and landed on my hand. It was a black crow's feather. I ran from the store. I have not seen Rachel or Jonathan since either of those occasions. I took a break from filling the well in order to write this. But already I can feel it calling me back. No matter how much I drink, it never fills all the way. But it needs to be filled and I'll keep trying. After all, just like Rachel had said all those years ago, walls are not that deep, right? Time to fill up. And with that, we've wrapped up yet another podcast. I want to thank you so much for your continued support on these compilations. It means a lot to me. I'd also like to give a big thank you to HelloFresh for sponsoring today's podcast. Make sure to go to HelloFresh.com slash MrCreep16 and use code MrCreep16 for 16 free meals across 7 boxes and 3 free gifts. The summer seems to be zooming along at record speed and as great as it's been, I think I'm ready for a spooky season to come into full effect. 
I hope that you're having a fantastic morning, day, or night, wherever you may be in the world. And as always, stay creepy.